0: Hello, and welcome to another installment of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with Dr. Patrick Spiro, the librarian and director of the American Philosophical Society Library, to discuss his new book, Frontier Rebels, The Fight for Independence in the American West, 1765-1776 the library will be open to the public as part of the President's Day festivities here at Mount Vernon. More information can be found on the website for this podcast. Finally, be sure to rate and subscribe to this series. And now, Dr. Butterfield's conversation with Dr. Spiro. The title "Frontier Rebels." Uh, There's a word there that I think is is worth unpacking a bit. Uh, "Frontier." Tell us what what the frontier means to you. What it means in the 18th century. Sure. Um, That has been a. uh, I've thought a lot about that question um, because the
1: frontier, I think, looms large in the American psyche. Um, For people that study history, there's of course the uh, Frederick Jackson Turner and his thesis about the frontier in which he argued that the frontier was the essential element uh, for forming the American national character, that it was through settling on the frontier that Americans learned democratic practices and that these practices ultimately informed the institutions that supported the uh, country. And this thesis came under kind of a withering assault in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, So, it was so strong that eventually uh, people started calling it the F word um, and saying that historians uh, should not even use the word frontier when describing these regions because... Um, Turner's thesis was not only wrong, but it was kind of embedded within it were uh, imperialistic, uh, racist, nationalist uh, assumptions that really um, are harmful and and ultimately were not uh, accurate, a good way to describe the past. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I thought about that debate alongside the historic records I was reading, I realized that a lot of Americans in the 18th century talked about living on a frontier. And that started to get me to think that for much of the debate about the frontier that historians have uh, been a part of, the the frontier was, they defined the frontier. Historians defined what the frontier meant, beginning with Turner and continuing even to those who were trying to revise Turner uh, and really uh, kind of undermine him. They were always redefining or defining the frontier or saying we can't use it, when in fact, People at the time used the word regularly, and I started to think, well, maybe the best way to approach frontier is to understand it on its own terms. What did it mean when somebody in the 18th century said, I'm a frontier inhabitant, which they said all the time? What did it mean when they said they lived in a frontier county? Uh, What did it mean during a war when somebody would write to their government and say, I have now become a frontier? Hmm. turned into a frontier. What did that mean? What did it mean? And so I started delving into all these sources, dictionaries, pamphlets, uh, correspondence, and I started to uncover a totally different definition of frontier, one that was certainly different from the one that Turner and others uh, envisioned when they were writing. So in the 18th century, a frontier meant a zone of invasion. Um, There was a dictionary definition, the most popular one of the time, uh, the Bailey Dictionary. And if I remember it correctly, its definition was something like the border or confines of a province that the enemy finds in the front when they're about to enter the same Wow so it's a zone of invasion a zone of potential contraction uh, it's an area that people did not want to live on they flee wow. they wanted to flee from the frontier they didn't want to flock to it. Now, by the 19th century, uh, people started to reimagine what the frontier looked like. That was the frontier that Jackson described as an area of free land, mm-hmm. it, it as an area of prosperity, as an area of opportunity. But for those in the 18th century, it meant something very different. In fact, it meant the exact opposite. And wow. so I said, if you started to understand how they viewed their world, you can actually start to reconstruct how they viewed politics, how they viewed their relationship to their governments. And ultimately, I argue, you can start to understand what I call the imperial crisis on the frontier. Um, wow. in
0: the coming of the revolution. So it raises an interesting question, though. Why are people there then? Uh, in the 18th century, the frontier is a place that people uh, feel as a, as a zone of violence and conflict. What's bringing them there? What's, uh, what's uh, Recreate well, that world for us.
1: Sure. One of the things that I did was I, I did a data mining project that you can read about on my website, patrickspiro.com, and I tracked out when people describe an area being a frontier. And one of the things that you realize is that a frontier is contingent. Hmm. It's contingent upon war. And so in, say, Pennsylvania, uh, one of the largest colonies uh, at the time, an area that historians have assumed always had a frontier, nobody talked about a Pennsylvania frontier really until the Seven Years' War when the French uh, began to invade their territory and people had developed a frontier. And you can track this out um, in the sources and you can see a animated uh, GIS map on my website where there's a huge spike during the 1750s but then it goes down. And mm. so people didn't go to a frontier, they went to the countryside <laughs> where they were able to establish farms and live in peace. And then war came and they became a frontier. And there's all these records of people just saying, we have now become a frontier. Wow. They turned into it. It's
0: not what they, they had. Wow. So uh, the, the story that you're telling here, there's there's a, uh, a book, I forget how, how many years old it is, but Dan Richter wrote, once wrote a book called Facing East from mm-hmm. Indian Country. And uh, that title kept rolling through my mind as I was reading this book, uh, because it, it seems to me that you're you're describing the coming of the American Revolution from a different vantage point than we typically do, which we would typically do it from Boston or do it from the coast. Um, you're doing it from the West. We're facing a different direction looking at the coming of, of, of the American Revolution. Um, in telling us that, that that story that way I all of a sudden see that some of the key dates that we normally go to, 1763, 1765, um, and 1765 is one I want to zone in on. Um, so typically we describe it in the in terms of the Stamp Act. But tell me about about this this moment at just after the end of the Seven Years' War, 1765, that we often see a coming of the American Revolution. What's it look like from the West? What's going on?
1: Sure, and this is really the heart of my book, and it was kind of a for me an exciting, uh, it felt like a discovery of a major. Uh, Political event that uh, I think is directly connected to the uh, imperial crisis on the frontiers, um, and so what happens in 1765 is there's a attempt. Uh, the, the, the there'd been a war between Native American groups in the Ohio and uh, the British. It was now known as Pontiac's War, and. In 1765, it's clear that many Native groups are willing to negotiate a peace treaty with the British, mm-hmm. um, and so William Johnson, who's the superintendent of Indian Affairs, uh, appoints his deputy George Crogan uh, to travel out to Fort Pitt and then to travel down the Ohio River in search of Native leaders, especially Pontiac, uh, who's mm-hmm. thought to be the chief uh, figure of the of the war. People don't know where he is. No, uh, and he's to to find them. He's to uh, you know. Uh, uh, Trade with them. He's to uh, provide them with goods to show that the British want to, uh, you know, enter into partnerships with them, and ultimately, he wants to find Pontiac to see if Pontiac's willing to, you know, establish a formal uh, peace agreement. Hmm. And so, to do this, Krogan. Uh, outfit's one of the largest pack trains of goods, I think, ever assembled in, in colonial America, at least one of the largest. It's estimated to be between 20 and 30,000 British pounds of goods. Wow. Uh, to give you a sense in size, the Boston Tea Party destroyed about 9,000 pounds of goods. Wow. This pack train of goods weighed over 40 tons. Um, it had 5,700 linen shirts in it. It had so many linen shirts that the city of Philadelphia at one point ran out of white shirts, and <laughs> Krogan had to custom-make shirts. Um, wow. It's a, So a remarkable uh, uh, you know, um, uh, cargo of goods, uh, a major task that he's uh, been asked to do. But as it starts to head west, as this pack train is headed to Fort Pitt to Krogan, who's then going to bring it uh, into the interior they start to encounter colonial resistance. And the further west they go, the stronger the resistance. And what you have are colonists in 1765 uh, on the frontiers uh, who had been living on this frontier environment in fear, uh, fear of invasion, uh, fear of French and also of their native allies they're not ready for peace. Um, they don't see the West in the same way that the British do. Um, they, can't, they can't imagine a world in which they negotiate peace treaties with former enemies. Now, for many British diplomats, administrators, this is kind of like a war with France, you know? Mm-hmm. You may go to war with France for a series of years, but once that war is over, you know, you may not like the French, but you know, you. your your countries and you treat each other, um, you know, as as you can trade and and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what they're trying to do after this war. Now, for colonists who had lived on the frontier they couldn't accept that. And so a group of colonists dressed as Native Americans, they blacken their faces with charcoal to uh, disguise themselves, destroy this pack train of goods, um, Uh or a large portion of it, which is one of the most audacious acts, um, I think in colonial uh, American history, when you think about the stamp acts that is happening at the same time. And then they laid siege to a fort. Uh, fort Loudon uh, for two days and nights, um, and eventually the commandant of the fort raises a flag of truce <laughs> wow. to negotiate some way to to bring down what to him seems like a civil war or rebellion. Um, and so this is a remarkable uh, movement that's happening on the frontiers, one that's happening at the same time as the Sons of Liberty are forming in the seaports. But it's one that we are not familiar with, um, in large part because the sources. Are um, manuscripts. Uh, they weren't in pamphlets. They weren't in newspapers.
0: And wow. so, yeah. part of my project has been to resurrect this story. So, the grievance of these of these uh, colonists, uh, it, it, they don't want peace with Native Americans, at least on the terms that seem to be uh, being discussed in 1765. Uh, what is what 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 are their concerns? What are, what are the, what are they frustrated with? Is it the, do they want the land? Mm-hmm. Do they want to eradicate? Is there racism? Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you describe what's going on here? Yeah, it,
1: it, it's a combination of things. Um, Certainly, land is on their mind, but at this point, I don't think it's the immediate cause of this rebellion. Um, I think there's a combination of uh, uh, fear, uh, fear of uh, Native American groups, but also fear of the East, hmm. and also hatred. And that's where uh, there's something that I, I, I can't describe other than racism, uh, a view hmm. of Native Americans in which you know they could not see natives as potential allies, they could only see them as enemies. There was this belief that there was going to be you know, an inevitable uh, further Indian wars, um, that Indians could not be trusted. It was a very different view of uh, natives that many British diplomats and policymakers uh, yeah. saw. Uh, but undergirding it, um, what they saw as the, the real cause for all of their uh, complaints was their colonial legislature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the legislature, Back in Philadelphia, exactly. So this is that fear of the east. Um, the, the representation at the time: there were thirty-six seats uh, in the legislature, twenty-six of whom came from the original eastern counties. So two counties in Philadelphia sent twenty-six representatives. The frontier sent ten. Now, uh, a historical demographer has gone back in time to try to estimate what the population was like, and there's evidence that it was about equal, that the frontier population was about equal to the East. And so they say one of the reasons, you know, we've suffered through these wars is because we couldn't get adequate defense. And the reason we couldn't get adequate defense is because we weren't represented in the legislature. And there's this great petition that's submitted during uh, the Black Boys Rebellion where they say um, to the governor, you know, you back east, sit at ease and not know how we feel. Sit Mm -hmm. at ease and know not how we feel. So there's this sense of this. Body politic. This polity is disconnected, um, and it's disconnected because the legislature doesn't fully represent the body. There's and a democratic impulse. There. Exactly.
0: That's, that's interesting. Yeah. So, are they, um, as they're making their, their agreements, as known in 1765, are are they successful in any way? What what happens in the in the years to come? Uh, they are not um, immediately successful. But what I
1: argue is that perhaps the most radical thing to happen in the revolution, certainly in Pennsylvania, is the frontier, what I call a frontier government, mm-hmm. in which these, during, the revolution, during the revolution, this democratic impulse you just mentioned was so strong. And many in Philadelphia realized that the frontier counties were more supportive of the revolution than perhaps those in Philadelphia. They did finally give equal representation to the frontier counties which means the frontier went from being underrepresented by this massive uh, ratio to now having a two-to-one almost uh, majority. Wow. And so here's a complete frontier revolution, a takeover of the government, and with that are a change in policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where you were talking about land, where during the revolution, Pennsylvania, which had been a uh, colony that had been trying to, to some extent, restrain settlement, now provides for almost unfettered
0: expansion um, onto, onto Indian land. Wow. Wow. Meaning, there's bound to be more conflict in the years ahead.
1: Exactly. And that's one of the things, uh, one of the main characters of Frontier Rebels is uh, somebody named James Smith, uh, Mm -hmm. who led a really remarkable life. Um, And he's the leader of the the Black Boys. Uh, And after the revolution, he goes to Kentucky and he serves in uh, one of the first legislatures of the state. Um, and you can see there that the, this frontier revolution really affected on a national scale, which is to say, before 1765, the British Empire was trying to recognize, to some extent, native sovereignty in the Ohio and Illinois. Um, after the revolution, Indian land is quickly turned into the land of the United States. It's a complete revolution, which is an overturning of the policy of the British.
0: Wow. The, uh, at the heart of what you described here, with the the rethinking of of, of representation in Pennsylvania, is this great moment of um, uh, I would say, sort of the democratic possibilities of the American Revolution. At least uh, when I used to teach, I would center in on the Pennsylvania Constitution mm-hmm. of 1776 as being about as far as they could imagine going. Um, you're saying that that's really a product of of the Western element in Pennsylvania making that happen. I think the Western and the radical element in
1: the East uh, came together came in together, this moment. Came right. Yep. And that's uh, something I talk about in the book is how the East and West merge, because I do see the coming of the revolution is very different in the East and the West. Um, it, there were different causes um, in, in the East. They were concerned about uh, trade regulation. They wanted freer trade. Uh, they wanted greater representation, but they wanted greater representation in parliament. They didn't have many complaints about their colonial legislatures. Right. Uh, But when you look West, um, they want a more regulated trade. Uh, They want more representation, but they're aiming their uh, animus at the colonial legislature. Mm -hmm. Um, But they come together in 1776 on these kind of shared ideas about representation.
0: Wow. So James Smith, uh, we talked about. Uh, you told us about a little bit about George Krogan. What happened to Pontiac, who who, who led this this uh, pan Indian effort uh, in the in the 1760s? What's his story? What happens next? Sure. Um, so Pontiac himself,
1: uh, in this moment of seventeen sixty five, is facing his own kind of governing crisis. Um, there's a great debate uh, among Native groups uh, on what the proper policy towards this. British Empire is going to be. Um, should they try and find, uh, you know, ways to work together? Uh, what you might think of as an accommodationist um, uh, approach, or should they maintain hostility towards the British Empire? Um, is the British Empire's ultimate goal to conquer this territory and uh, take control of it, and to not respect native sovereignty? Mm-hmm. And now Pontiac was clearly, you know, in the uh, 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 camp against the British Empire in 1763 when mm-hmm. he led a, uh, you know, movement to uh, oust the British from from that territory. But by 65 he's now more open to negotiating. Um, And so this uh, ongoing debate in Indian country over the proper approach to the British Empire continues. And Pontiac is ultimately killed, uh, I believe in 1767, uh, murdered uh, most likely by uh, rivals. Um, And it's unclear precisely uh, the cause, Um, but you do see his power after 1765 waning. And it's largely waning because, you know, I don't know that he's not able to maintain the alliances that he had and that that vision for
0: the future that he had seems less and less
1: viable as time goes on.
0: It's, it's a fascinating cast of characters um, involved here. and One of the things that... Uh, uh, at Mount Vernon, I feel obliged to do, and, and I'm pleased to do it, is to, to bring George Washington into the story. Um, I know that uh, that he is someone as a surveyor who, who has always been uh, thinking about Western lands and Western uh, land speculation was a, certainly a part of how he uh, began to build uh, his own uh, financial stability in the 1750s and 60s and beyond. Uh, but he's also a, a soldier in the French and Indian War. Tell, uh, Bring George Washington into the story. Where does he fit in into uh, how we think about the American West in the 1760s and 70s. Sure. I mean,
1: Washington's vision was of the West. Um, One of the things that I like to talk about um, in terms of the early government, uh, certainly Washington's, but throughout the 19th century is that when Political scientists often talk about grand strategy, and when they talk about the, you know, the United States grand strategy, they're often talking about it in terms of, uh, you know, on the global stage, how the US is trying to position itself vis-a-vis Europe or, or other countries. Uh, but mm-hmm. in the 18th and 19th century, it's usually to be, you know, uh, how, how it relates to European affairs. Right. But I really think the grand strategy of the United States was the West. If you look at where they allocated most of their defense attention, where they allocated most of their diplomacy and treaties, it was about getting control of the West. And that certainly was Washington's vision and it's one that continued throughout the 19th century.
0: Interesting. in the, uh, in the, the closing um, uh, sections of the book, uh, you, do, you look forward beyond 1776, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, we get to the, the actual coming of revolution, and uh, you, uh, it, it comes clear here that there's, that you're telling a story that's, uh, like you say, not been told before, but in part because it's in manuscript rather than in pamphlet. I think also we, we tend to think about stories coming out of Boston and Philadelphia, not uh, out of t- little towns we haven't heard of on, on the western frontier. Um, but in that story, uh, there's a there's a, a backstory that we historians have to sort of flush out. How did you uncover this stuff? Where are you finding the materials? How do you uncover this uh, um, this largely unprinted story mm-hmm. of the uh, 1760s and 1770s? Sure. Uh, so it, it began with another rebellion, actually, called the Paxton Boys' Rebellion.
1: Okay, uh, it was sure. in 1763.
0: Give us the short version
1: of that. Yep. Uh, so in 63, uh, in the middle of Pontiac's War, a group of frontiersmen living in Lancaster County uh, massacre uh, the Conestoga Indians, essentially exterminate the entire group, and wow. then uh, march on Philadelphia and that mushrooms into this massive pamphlet war, and it turns into a real political movement, and this fascinated me in the same way that black boys did, in the sense that I grew up in Boston, I knew the story of the Sons of uh, Liberty and the Boston mm-hmm. Massacre and the Tea Party, and the Paxton boys were completely foreign to me, and right. so I began researching them, and you know, as any historian often does, you have to start digging deeper, and then you also have to start going to understand the roots of something, and then you have to start, start moving forward to understand the, the effects, and in that uh, move forward, I started to come across this other rebellion hmm. um, in which James Smith was a the figure they refer to as the black boys and I kept because digging of and digging you know, how they b- their exactly faces. charcoaling their their face and then I uh, went to the Clements Library at the University of Michigan where they have the papers of Thomas Gage and in Gage's papers are an enormous amount of depositions from officers who were confronting the black boys, writing back, you know, reports on what was happening. They were deposing uh, people on the frontier to explain what, how this was all happening. And I was able to kind of reconstruct this world and this event. And to me, it ended up being, um, more interesting than uh, because it happened in the same year as the Stamp Act. Mm-hmm. You know, this is 1765, yeah. right, right, and right. as I'm going through Gage's correspondence, he's the com- commander-in-chief of North America. You know, he's paying so much attention to the black boys, and I'm not reading anything about the Stamp Act. You yeah. know, so uh, those on the frontier weren't. Talking about the Stamp Act, you know, it's in engage, some engages correspondence, but he's more concerned about this, the frontier areas, um, yeah. and so I realized there that I had a you know really interesting
0: story to tell. That's great. Um, okay, well, that's that's looking backward. Uh, looking forward, uh, what are you working on these days? What do you think about?
1: Well, uh, you know, I've got a, a lot of ideas. Uh, <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, has interested me uh, is that. To start moving east myself, mm. um, to start looking at what was actually happening in Philadelphia during the Revolution um, itself, right. which I think is a somewhat also of an under-told and underappreciated story. Um, mm. There are a lot of events that happen within Philadelphia um, while it was the nation's capital that, that aren't well known. That again get at um, I think. Uh, You know, the the challenge that the revolution posed to individuals and and people, Um, there's something called the Quaker Exiles, uh, in which a group of Quakers in Philadelphia, uh, the writ of habeas corpus is suspended, they're arrested, uh, and then brought to a farm in Winchester, Virginia, where they're held for a period of months, all because they're suspected of being loyalist. Um, Held without trial. Exactly. Uh, So that may be, you know, one of the first cases of uh, internment in U.S. history. Wow. Um, And so so I'm I'm starting to dig... in the East. Um, I think I've spent
0: enough time on the frontiers. <laughs> but you, you, you're, you're, your vantage will always be looking from the West, which I think is great. You, yeah. you, you can see the uh, the rich, uh, uh, multi-layered uh, coming of the American Revolution. Mm. Uh, this is a great great opportunity to, 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 to flush these things out with you. Uh, thank you so much for talking about it with us here today.
1: Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.